family. If you're listening to me, you probably can't sleep. This is Jonathan Soul speaking with you now. Me and my friend Insomnia were just talking. <clears throat> he got me reading this book called uh, The 80-20 Principle, uh, The Secret of Achieving Less with More by Richard Koch. I actually heard about it from uh, Tim Ferriss, who I follow. <clears throat> you know, I've heard about this idea for a while. You know, I even did a show about it a long time ago on one of my older podcasts. Uh, the 80-20 rule, you know, the way I was first introduced, you know, was just talking about relationships, meaning, uh, you know, the, the a good spouse will give you 80% of what you want and, you know, she won't have the 20% you know, that you might find tantalizing. Whereas the mistress will have 20%, that missing 20% that you find, you know, you know, hard to resist, but she won't have the 80% that your spouse has, right? So that's the way I got introduced to it. And never forget, man, I was, a, I was at a gig and uh, it was quiet and I had my little recorder. Damn, I think it was a tape. Uh, it might it, no, it was a digital recorder. I had the fellas all in a circle, and you know, some folks was married, some folks was just dating, and man, they had a lot to say about it. And I uploaded it, and I don't know, uh, it was years ago, and that was like a very popular <laughs> little program. You know, everybody had so much to say. But here's the funny thing: nobody wanted their spouses. Or, or significance to take a listen to it, which was hilarious. You know what I mean? It's hilarious. Um, with this with this book, uh, I haven't gotten to any relationship stuff yet. It's just been talking about, you know, this French dude uh, who who discovered the principle. Uh, excuse me. Let me find the brother's name. And um, and uh, you know, he discovered it with like you know the way economics was. Uh, you know, being divvied out uh, in his time period, and uh, the name will come to me. And uh, he also noticed, like, in, you know, in nature and different things, that I think the story goes, like, 20% of the seeds produce 80% of the, the, the crops in his garden, that kind of a thing. So, you know, the whole idea is, okay, since this occurs in nature, that means that nature is like fundamentally unbalanced. I mean, that's that's the way I heard it. He, maybe he, this is not what he's saying. You know, and it's so, so funny how the, the sci-fi thing came ahead. Well, the Jedi said that, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. It's like, you know, it's what we always know just from working, right? That it's always a small group of people who do most of the work. We know this. We know this. You know what I mean? And and if you got to ask, you know, well, who's doing all the work, then you're probably, <laughs> probably 80%. I'm not judging you. You probably having a better time at it than me. You know what I mean? Um, but we've been in places where, uh, you know, you have, let's say you have 10 people, right? And maybe two of them, you know, are like highly productive. And then you have, you know, maybe, I don't know, six of them that are, uh, you know, doing what they need to do, punching in the clock and going home. 
And then you got those two that take two hour lunch breaks, <laughs> disappear when the boss is gone, you know, them type of people. And uh, it's funny because them type of people seem to enjoy life more, you know what I mean? But uh, they frustrate the hell out of the other people. But in terms of like productivity, it seemed like those two people, right? I would like to say that I'm, I, I've either been part of that, that two people, that 20%, or I've been part of that middle. You know, I haven't been disappearing and all that kind of shit. I just, that's just not how I was brought up, you know, for good or ill. And so, you know, then, you know, he goes on in his book, and I'm only on, uh, I would say I'm probably 20% through. I'll try 20% through. But the whole idea that, um, and then he talked about the, the, I got the, I've always been fascinated with the idea of a chaos theory. How can you have a theory about chaos? But basically, he was, the way this brother was seemed to be mentioning it, he was saying like, okay, what we perceive as chaos is just like this melody, you know, you know, hidden behind all of this noise. You know what I mean? Like there, there are these causal effects, you know, that are, that are making shit happen, but we just, we just can't, we can't peep the rhythm basically, you know, kind of a thing. And uh, I was like, okay, well, that's cool. That's cool. Uh, and then I started thinking, damn, who among my friends can I talk about this with? I can talk about with all of them, but I just don't know if anybody's reading, you know what I mean? Is reading these books there. There might be one or two, but they might be reading something different, you know? The other thing I was thinking is, uh, and the reason why I got the book is, uh, the Tim Ferriss brother, he was talking about how he, he kind of did like an 80, 20 analysis of his life. And he started looking at some of the, you know, what is the most of like the most productive uh, 20% that uh, he, he's doing in terms of, say, relationships, right? What relationships personally are the most productive? You know, of course, family gets a pass. But, you know, if you got, you know, somebody that's drag, maybe you might just cut down your time with them. And then the people who buoy you, who, who build you up, you might increase kind of a thing. You know, what working techniques, you know, might be, uh, you know, you know, more productive and which of the other ones that just aren't producing, you know, or are producing. So the idea, I think, with the 80-20 as I'm getting into it is, is like if you do 10 things, right, let's say you do 10 things. Two of those things are going to be as productive as the other eight things that you're doing. And then if you look at the, the, the eight things that you're doing, they're not going to be as productive as the two. So the idea is to double up on a two, double up on a 20% so that you get even a bigger, you know, uh, you know, yield, you know, more productivity, you know, for less effort. Because if you cut back on that, 80% that's not as effective, then you're getting more output for less work. And then, of course, it's not just about working smarter, which is, you know, you could look at it that way, too. It was also talking about relationships kind of a thing, you know. Um, my mind was drifting to a lot of the brothers who are expats now, who are going to Dominican Republic or going to, you know, Cuba, not Cuba, I haven't heard anybody go to Cuba, but people are going to Colombia, um, different places like that, 
you know, and there, you know, a lot of them are retirees. Some of them are, you know, younger brothers who, you know, work, you know, remotely kind of a thing. And, uh, you know, it, it seems like they're, they have, they're expending less effort just in terms of stress. I didn't realize until, you know, I got older how much like, uh, you know, like financial stuff can be like an invisible stress. You're not even aware of it until, let's say, you pay off something or whatever. And then you feel that lift. And it's like, whoa, I didn't even know I was carrying that weight, you know. Or maybe you're, you know, in traffic or, you know, it's just like, uh, you know, sometimes I might be driving someplace. Like there's this one particular road where the cops like to do checkpoints. I just hate that. You know, I'm not doing anything, of course, but I'm not one of those knuckleheads that think, well, you know, if you're not doing anything wrong, you know, I think privacy is like a human right. I think privacy is necessary for like mental health. You know, I, I just don't think that, uh, you know, privacy is something that should be optional. And, uh, and so I just avoid those places. You know what I mean? I just avoid those places. But, um, you know, if you're in another country and you're an American, you know, if you're in quote unquote third world, there's a certain kind of, for lack of a better word, privilege, apparently that you enjoy. And so, you know, it seems like those guys aren't dealing with those same kind of stresses that we are over here in the States kind of a thing. Um, you know, so, you know, that, that may be, you know, you're still working, you know, or you're retired and you're still living, but you're in an environment that is yielding, you know, more happiness for you. You know, my definition of happiness is, uh, you know, I had one definition of happiness. I thought happiness was just like, you know, a feeling kind of a thing. And uh, Tim Ferriss, again, listened to one of his books, I think it's Four Hour Work Week. And he redefined uh, happiness as passion. And I thought of it, I'm thinking, okay, is this just a word game type of deal or whatever? But then I started thinking about it, and I was like, hmm. Like, I'm passionate about broadcasting, right? I mean, why else? I, could be, I should be taking sleeping pills right now. <laughs> I'm here talking to whoever's going to listen. But you know what's so funny? As much as I enjoy people giving me thumbs up and all that stuff, just the act of broadcasting is a joy. You know, I mean, I, I'm engaged in a couple of different activities. But I remember I was trying to explain to one of my kids, you know, what you know, happiness was or, or something like that or whatever. And then I, I, I kind of told him, I said, if I was going to a desert island, you know, food and shelter wasn't an issue, but I was going to be there alone. I would take a microphone. Which is kind of funny because, you know, I got a novel in Amazon. I got a novel on my bookshelf and I got about six in my head. But I wouldn't take a typewriter. I wouldn't. I would take a microphone. You know what I mean? So who you, you it's just the act of broadcasting to me brings me joy. You know, um, I've seen people do things that other people may seem mundane but they enjoy it. And so like gardening, gardening to me got to be the boringest shit ever. Right. But I had an uncle rest in peace who, uh, who used to garden and he was so proud of showing us the, you know, the, 
you know, the, 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 the leaves and the stems and, you know, talking about the bugs and the rabbits and different things. And, and you know, he had that. He was the southerner. So he had that talk, you know, uh, what you know about them timber greens, John? You know, what I mean, kind of thing, <laughs> you know, kind of a thing. You know, to me, it's just, it's just, I think I can go to the store, baby. You know, but the way he, just the way he, the way he described that he lit up, you know, he was glowing as we walked into his garden. You know, I don't even know if he was aware of it, you know, kind of a thing. But it's, it's those kinds of things that, you know, I think this brother in the 20%, the 80-20 principle is talking about. He's like, okay, write down your uh, happiness islands, he said. That's a fancy term. I was just write down the moments, you know, where you are, are the most happy or you're the most passionate. We're going to take Ferris's definition, passion, right? So, uh, of course, it means broadcasting. Another thing is just the whole idea of, like, freedom, right? Um, years ago, I was reading this book um, by one of these guys, um, one of these, like, kind of like activist, government worker type person in the 60s, right? He was, um, uh, he was, uh, you know, he became like a, one of the, you know, gov you know, he might've been a cabinet member of Kennedy. I can't, I'm trying to remember everything, but long story short, um, he would be what you would call like the budding black middle class coming out of the sixties. And, uh, was it Roger Wilkins? It might've been Roger Wilkins book. And, uh, if it's not Roger Wilkins, please forgive me. But the point is, there was somebody I read back then who talked about how some, uh, you know, black uh, professionals during that period, you know, hesitated on the whole idea of having children because they didn't want to bring, you know, African-American children to this rotten ass, wicked country. You know what I mean? Now, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a dichotomy, right? Because it's mad opportunity, people breaking their necks to get here. But on the flip side, you know, your kid could be outside playing with a water gun. You know, some bitch called the cops. And ba ba pow And, you know, for you to get any kind of inkling of justice, you got to, you know, be connected on the social media. I mean, how many, pro you know what I mean? Kind of a thing. And then... Even if you do, the chances of the cops actually getting arrested is, is fairly slim, kind of a thing, you know. So they talked about, you know, how, you know, they really had really thought. And again, I'm not sure if it was Wilkins, but it was some person involved in the 60s. You know, they didn't want to bring kids into the world kind of thing. On the flip side, when we think, when they was thinking about the world, they was thinking about America. America is a very small part of the world. You know, a very small part of the world. Um, you know, you know, there are other places that may not have the the, 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 the the financial, you know, stuff in place, but the people are good. You know, the people are warm. You know, you, you know, I mean, any place on the planet you're poor, you're catching hell. That's number one, you know, kind of a thing. But if you, you know, from the quote unquote first world, you know, the whole idea of leveraging that dollar. You know, in a third world country, you know, you can, you know, you can, you, you, you might get achieve, you know, some more happiness kind of a thing, you know, you achieve some more happiness. Um, but yeah, so anyway, so getting back to this 80, this 80, 20 thing. So I'm kind of, I was kind of writing down, you know, on the little phone, man, I love that Samsung four, 
And it's just, you got Samsung Note 4. I got an ancient joint, but man, whipping out that little stylus right on the screen is off the chain. Writing down, you know, some of this, uh, you know, this happiness stuff. And it's stuff I already know. I, you know, I've always kind of had my foot in one of these books at some point or another. And uh, it's funny because I'm kind of naturally going toward that, you know, different little decisions that I make, different little risks I take. Sometimes the risks work, sometimes they don't. You know, but that's, you know, that's a chance you take out. That's a chance you take getting out of bed in the morning, you know, kind of a thing. Uh, but yeah, yeah, this is a groovy book. This whole 80-20 thing. He talks about, you know, looking at your relationships and, you know, you know, what can you tweak? And then me, you know, I have the philosophy. If there's something you feel like wrong in your life or some people getting on your nerves, the first place you need to change is yourself. You know, change yourself. You know, if somebody's acting like an asshole, you might need to, you know, change and say, you know, check them. You know, uh, uh, kind of a thing. You know, that might be one, and that's a, that's a move you make. You know, or you know, flip side, maybe not giving them attention. You know, but those are all changes in your own behavior. You know, kind of a thing. Um, you know, the, you know, kind of bring you in alignment, type of deal. But now this is dope. This is dope. This is, uh, I got this book and I got another one about marketing and other kind of things like that. You know, um, I, I have more pieces of books read than whole books. And I'll end with this. There's this one book that I got years and years ago called Tribes. And I'll never forget this line in the book. He was like, in the future, it's going to be no more Japan, just Japanese. And when I think about these expats, I think about that, you know, I mean, you can go on YouTube right now and you can find very, you know, uh, clear evidence of all kinds of tanks and military vehicles being deployed, you know, being shipped in, you know, on, on, on in convoys on the road on you know the train like the you know like the better trucks tanks and they're not shipping them overseas they shipping them like around the country kind of a thing i've seen it myself you know and uh you know then people talk about the what do you call the why are all the walmart's closing and why are they closing this you know you know this that and the third and you know why is there barbed wire and you know so there's a the whole idea like you know okay they're doing camps they're gonna pick people in camps blah 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 kind of a thing you know there was even this one lady trucker that i was listening to she was like i'm on the road and i'm seeing all these soldiers you know on these trucks like they like they you know they they go into battle or something is this stuff about the camp what's the point the point is is that maybe a whole bunch of us might have to leave the country maybe but one thing, if you guys check out those videos about expats, whenever African-Americans or Africans, you know, I would say Africans from the West, that's that's the vibration I've seen. When we see each other, man, here you, what's up, baby? You know, kind of thing. It's like right there, there's like African-America. You know what I mean? Kind of a thing. Uh, you know, you know, when brothers see each other, it's like, yo, you know, it reminds me of when I was, in, I went to this uh, college, all white school. Right. When I say all white, I mean, we might have been 10 percent of the population. And to me, it's all white. 
And I remember we had this, uh, our campus was kind of shaped like a dumbbell. So like, you know, one side of the weight was the academic buildings where you went to class and the administrative buildings. And then the other side of the dumbbell was the dorms, right? And then that bar in between was this walk, this, this sidewalk we used to call it a quarter mile. And I'm, and, and so it was like, it was a quarter mile, which was, um, you know, like a paved walkway, you know, from one side of the camp to the other. And then they had to the right, it was this big ass field. If you was coming from the dorms, it was to the right. If you're coming back from the school building, it's to the left. Big ass field where the soccer people would play and everything. And uh, it wasn't, you know, very manicured or whatever. And they called that the tundra because in the wintertime, Jesus H. Christ, the wind would blow. It was kind of like a, it kind of dipped down a little bit. The wind would blow through you. It would through you. It would take the heat out your bones, right? And uh, the snow and a whole bit. So anyway, <clears throat> so from the so if you was in the middle of the quarter mile, and you was in the middle of the tundra, it probably was like a half a mile away because it's our distance. But we would still wave at each other. All the black students, particularly the guys, you know, they would wave. Yo, 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 <laughs> you know what I mean? It was, so I, I, I bet you them expats is doing the same thing, you know what I mean? The black pass is doing the same thing. No, it might be a situation, you know, where, where folk might have to, I mean, what's the point of knowing all of this shit and then not acting? You know what I mean? Kind of a thing, you know. Uh, what's the point of knowing all this? They had them FEMA camps. Next thing you know, you know, <laughs> pack your bags, <laughs> you know, kind of a thing. So, uh, yeah, it might be a situation where it might be no more African, uh, you know, more, no more America, just African Americans. You know what I mean? Just Americans abroad. You know, it might be like that before we settle back in the motherland. You know, before all of us find ourselves in Ghana or someplace. You know, maybe that's the twenty percent. <laughs> that's a twenty percent. Oh man, maybe that's a twenty percent. Maybe you know all this protest. Oh my god. You know it's so funny. So these guys are waiting. The the cops are called, and then they take him away. All right, I, I got you. People, you know, got their dignity. You know, I'm not doing anything wrong. You know, why are you calling them cops on me? I'm not gonna just jump because the officer's here. Okay, fine, whatever. You know, and they're granted you taking a real gamble, you know, because they're already scared of you. And now you're sending folk with, with guns who are scared of you. You understand? But whatever. But then they go and protest. <clears throat> I can dig suing. That makes sense. You know, they violated your, you know, just, just civil rights or whatever. But, you know, between the Starbucks and between the, the waffle people, it's like, uh, I just don't see the dignity, particularly when you have black coffee houses and black, you know, restaurants, you know, you know, black people can make some chicken and waffles like a motherfucker, you know, even if you don't got a black waffle house in your town, you know, God damn it. You can make it at the house. You know, I, I went to Starbucks every now and again just because I didn't have time to make it at home or the, the coffee at work was nasty. But after them two brothers, I meant the hell with. But I'm already going to a black coffee house on the weekends. It's like a little tradition. Started with my kids, you know. I just don't see the dignity in that. 
And if you think about it, and, and this is something I tweeted about, by the way, if you, you know, if you guys haven't fallen asleep yet, this is Jonathan Soul, and uh, Jonathan Soul on my on my Twitter account, I was saying that um, yeah, where's the dignity? You know, how many, you know, black uh, owned coffee houses or or black owned um, restaurants would love to have that business? You know, how many of them would love to have that business? You know, instead of, you know, you following that kind of, you know, white liberal blueprint and going way back to the 60s to do sit ins and stuff, you know, that seemed like controlled opposition, right? Because they having you expel all this energy, possibly putting your lives in danger for what? Okay, so now they're not going to call the police on you, but they're going to spit in your food. As opposed to marshalling up all of that energy and then creating jobs at a black coffee house or a black business because the demand is so great. Now, when they had that little movement, you know, a few years back with Killer Mike talking about put your money in black banks, I'm still hearing about that. The black bank I, I bank at, I, I recently moved my, my bread, they still talking about that about the extra hours and all, you know, it was all hands on deck. They still talking about that. That's something substantial. You know, it's pretty obvious that we dealing with a different type of people now, maybe years ago, you know, under, you know, Martin Luther King and them, maybe there was a conscious, a conscience that could be touched by all of that. I, I I don't think so, but I wasn't there, right? I wasn't there. Only thing I know is, is that there were all these beautiful black enclaves of businesses and uh, residences and stuff. And, you know, were they attacked? Absolutely. You know, you know, could we have done things better? Could we have maybe defended ourselves? You know, possibly. You know, maybe not, you know, <clears throat> maybe not. You know, there was one instance where, you know, I remember asking somebody online, I said, well, why didn't they just, you know, break out the rifles and stuff when they attacked and these whites attacked this one black town? They said they did. But then they had an air, they had an airplane dropping bombs on the people. I think that was the black Wall Street situation, you know. So, I mean, if you're out, you're out, you know, gunned, okay, I get it. I, I, I understand, you know, but it's at the end of the day, everybody got to make their own choice. I just don't see the logic. You know, if you playing a game or if you're in some kind of, you know, contest or whatever, you know, sometimes the same old tactics are just not effective. Look how long it took us to get a Black Panther movie. That's because we're waiting on them. Now, if we would have, you know, continue with Oscar Mouchot on up, we would have had Black Panthers all the way through. You follow me? We wouldn't have to, you know, take a caricature of ourselves. You know, something that's non-threatening to the people who control Hollywood. 
you know, to get our image out there. That's the wonderful thing about the internet. It's direct to consumer. So as wonderful as, you know, this Black Panther moment, and it's still happening. Black Panther's been in the theater for what? Uh, was it February? So February, March, April, going into May. It's still in the theater, still making money. This one brother, YouTuber, said he was making like $5 million or something like that. It's like, it's like, I know he said it's like number five in the box office after being in the, in the theater for several months. That's something that African-American people want. And this is an opportunity for the artists and the writers and the broadcasters like myself to keep spouting that, keep pushing that. Because there is an audience for it. And what we need to do is we need to have that Funkadelic Principle. If you're unfamiliar, the Funkadelic Principle is basically just two components. It's not heavy. It's just two. The first component is that Malcolm wins. That's the first component. Malcolm wins. So, you know, in a, you know, and this is in a, in a in a funkadelic, uh, if Black Panther was a funkadelic movie. Now, granted, Ryan Coogler did an incredible, him and his team did an incredible, mind-blowing job. They did a service to humanity by getting that movie out, I'm telling you. The funkadelic principle is Malcolm wins. That's that's the gist of it. You know, that's, that's the gist of it. You know, the other principle, of course, is that, that we have a future that's worth defending. That's the other principle, is that we have a future that's worth defending. So what I mean by that? What I mean is you don't project slavery into the future in your sci-fi and in your comics and stuff. You don't project, uh, you know, the downtrodden, the drug dealer. You don't do that. There's some type of utopia. There's some type of tremendous progress that we enjoy, but maybe it's in danger kind of a thing. I'm not telling people how to write. I'm just telling you, these are the principles, ideas, eyes, files. There are people, there are African-American people, African people, right? No matter where, what country you call home, that write stuff, you know, that's dope, man. Crazy dope. I just wouldn't consider it funkadelic. And I say funkadelic because I don't like, you know, Afro future. I don't like that hyphen. You know what I mean? You know, I like that. I don't like that hyphen. You don't say Asian fusion. You know what I mean? I just funkadelic. That's the word. That's, that's our stuff. So to me, funkadelic is a genre that's basically pro-black sci-fi. It's pro. It's the kind of sci-fi that when you read it, you're like, yeah, I want to work toward that future. I don't want to read no books where, you know, it's, you know, slavery, you know, like I remember seeing that movie Brother from Another Planet. And as amazing as it is to have a I don't want uh, that's not funkadelic to me. It's a brilliant film. The actor was tremendous, but that's not funkadelic to me. I don't want to see us as slaves in outer space. I don't think that's healthy for the, the consciousness. Yeah, I got to remember we deal with PSD from all of this trauma that we dealing with constantly.
we need some healing. You know, this this funkadelic, <clears throat> if there's a third principle, you know, the work should have a healing component. And not a healing component like they're there, uh, you're fucked up now, you're fucked up in the future, you get on the other side. No, no, no. Every dog got his day. And if you're writing for us, I feel like you should give us a win. You know, if we want to look at the negative shit, we can just turn on social media and see cops beating up kids and, you know, girls shaking their butt. You know what I mean? All kind of stuff. We can look at that, but, you know, I mean, now granted, there's some sci-fi that's straight entertainment. I got you. I'm not judging it at all. But what I'm saying is there should be a funkadelica a genre, a pro, a pro black unapologetically black uh branch of sci-fi fantasy that should be produced you know and if you're a human being and you have an open mind you know you shouldn't find that threatening and you shouldn't find yourself apologizing for that because when you build from your own you know root from a position of strength then when you come to the different groups of the world, then you can, you guys can relate on equal footing, you know? So that's it. I think the insomnia is just about to leave. Let's see if I can upload this without falling asleep. John Vassol, johnvassol.com. Uh, over there, I talk to artists and writers about life and business, and sometimes, you know, we drift off into politics. Love you guys. Hope all your dreams come true. Peace, love, and bacon grease.